Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. A lot of you being able to see some new friends that I've not been able to see on a Sunday morning um, for quite some time. Uh, a lot of you may not know, if you're newer to our church, uh, that about 12 years ago it's been now, uh, we started a South Campus, uh, actually meets in Cobb Theaters at uh, Lakeside Village. And so um, I'm normally there. It's great to be with you here. But knowing that I should be South or feel South and I'm North, I'm a creature of habit like my mom. I picked up some, you know, some of my mom's ways. She was very detailed, very organized, creature of habit. So because of that, I'm a little, you be patient with me because I'm trying to get acclimated. Like, for example, before coming here this morning, knowing I wouldn't be smelling it, I had to have a, a bag of popcorn and a Diet Coke for breakfast this morning. So I had that. That seemed to be really helpful to me. And, and then I brought, brought along a story. I do this quite often at Lakeside to just open with a story. And I want to just go ahead and tell you ahead of time, this story has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the message. If like midway through this message that I'm about to share with you, you're trying to connect this story with the message, I'm just telling you ahead of time, that will be an effort in futility because it is not connected whatsoever. But I do like the story, and I brought it with me, and I'd like to share it with you. The year is 20. 24. And the United States has just elected the first woman as president of the United States, and she is from Georgia. Of course she is. A few days after the election, the president-elect calls her father in Macon and asks, so dad, I assume that you'll be coming to my inauguration. I don't think so, honey. It's such a long drive. Your mom isn't as young as she used to be. We'll have the dog with us, and my arthritis is acting up in my knee. Well, Dad, don't worry about that. I'll send Air Force One to pick you up and take you home, and a limousine will pick you up at your front door, she said. Honey, I, I, I don't know. Everybody's going to be so fancy. What in the world would your mother wear? Oh, Dad, she replied, I'll make sure she has a wonderful gown custom made by one of the best designers in New York. Honey, Dad complained, you know we can't eat those rich foods uh, like you and your friends like to eat. The president-elect responded, don't worry, Dad. The entire affair is going to be handled by the best caterer in D.C., and I will ensure that all of your meals are salt-free for you and Mom. So our parents reluctantly agreed, and so on January 20th, 2024, when it arrived, they came to see their daughter sworn in as the president of the United States. The parents of the new president are seated in the front row. The president's dad sees that a senator is sitting next to him and leans over and whispers, you see that woman up there with her hand on the Bible becoming the president of the United States? The senator whispered and replied, yes, sir, I sure do. Then her dad says proudly, I bet you don't know that her brother played football for the University of Georgia. That is not connected to this message, I'm just telling you. I want to take you this morning to an obscure Old Testament book. You probably have not read it uh, lately, perhaps some of you have, but uh, again, it's not one of those where you're going to spend an enormous amount of time because it's one of the minor prophets. Uh, minor not in less important, it's just shorter in, in terms of its content. So Mike is actually only about seven chapters long, and here's what I'd actually encourage you to do this week. In, in addition to the normal you know, devotional time that you have, maybe what you would do is you would add one chapter of Micah to your devotions this week because it's a fascinating book. And again, I think it's often overlooked when there's so many valuable things in it that God wants to say to us. Now, one of the things that when you're studying the Bible, and I'll just give you, give you this as a little helpful hint, 
One of the good things that you can do and should try to do if you really want to dig in and study a passage a little bit more in a little bit more detail, then one of the things that you ought to try to do is to try to understand as much as you can about the context of it. You know, who, who wrote it? Who was it written to? What were the circumstances surrounding that? And so I want to deal with a little bit of that, sort of the historical narr- narrative, sort of the background of that. And I'll do that to set up because in just a few moments, really about halfway through this message, I, I want to to share with you uh, real pragmatically some practical things that I think will be helpful to you. So let's look at sort of the background first. Several things play out in what is taking place in, in Micah. The people of Judah that Micah is speaking to, being used by God to speak to them, the people of Judah at every level are living in a way that is displeasing to God. God is not proud of what they're doing. It is not the life that God has called them to. God has such a much better plan for them, a path of faith and obedience and blessing and favor, but they're not moving in that direction. In fact, scores of people who are God's people, we know that, are being disobedient to God. Uh, Many of them are totally rebellious. Idolatry, when you look at what's happening here that, again, Micah is speaking into, idolatry is prolific, and the poor are being greatly oppressed. And I'm sure that you will notice, and I hope you'll take me up on that challenge, read a chapter of days so that you're more familiar with Micah. And when you do, here's something that you're going to notice, that the prophet Micah utters words of judgment. You're going to see that. A little bit of that is going on here. But then you keep reading because he's going to offer words of hope and restoration and forgiveness. He's speaking into the reality of where they're at at that moment. And he's saying, you know what? God is not real happy with you right now. God is displeased. You are not living the obedient life. You're not living that higher calling that God actually had planned and determined for your life. And you're chasing idolatry. You're being oppressive to those who are needy in their life. You're not really giving God the priority that God deserves. And yet he offers, as many prophets would do, the major and the minor prophets, offers words of hope that if you'll repent, if you'll get right with God, if you'll come clean with God, here's what God is going to do. He's going to bless you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to restore you to that place that he actually has deemed for your life. So this morning, we're going to go to chapter 6, the sixth of seven chapters, and here Micah imagines what many of the people are saying. He's quoting, I believe, the response of many Israelites at this time. In fact, I'll just give you what one Old Testament scholar has written that sort of sets up what we're about to see. This particular Old Testament scholar says, this is not Torah. What you're about to see, this is not Torah or questions that a priest would ask a person when coming into the temple. But you're going to see something, and you've probably read it one way before. You know, most of us have. I, I did initially. Uh, for the longest time, in fact, but then I want to walk you through because it's a little bit different than maybe you, you think it is, and I'll show you what I mean. Micah chapter 6, look beginning at verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Now, this is not Micah. He's speaking, you know, what the people are speaking. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Is that what God wants? What do you want, God? You want burnt offerings? All right, I'll do that. With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? In other words, you know, is that going to make you happy, God? Are you going to find, you know, pleasure in that? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body? Talking about, you know, their child for the sin of my soul. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. Now Micah's kicking in. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, again, we're dealing with background at this point. We'll make a shift in just a few moments, but I want you to pay careful attention to what is happening in these verses. In a series of questions, people are seeking to establish the price that it would take to win God's favor. And each time that they mention, you know, a phrase, in this case, the bid gets higher and higher each time. And again, you saw it, but let me just, and you'll see sort of the ascension, the the increase of it. All right, so God, what do you want? What's going to make you happy? What do you require? Will it be burnt offerings? That's sort of, you know, like right here. Is that what it will take to please you? Is that going to make you happy? Well, what about not burnt offerings? What about with calves a year old? Is that, is that going to please you? Is that going to make you happy? Well, let's ratchet it up again. Well, if that's not going to do it, what about thousands of rams? What about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? And then it's like the clincher. Shall I offer my firstborn? You know, do I just present my child to you as a sacrifice? Now, if we just looked at this from a surface level, it seems somewhat sincere and spiritual. In fact, let me just say this. Uh, if you're like me, uh, when I started getting a little bit more familiar with this book, and this has been a number of years ago when I first became a Christian, it's like I get to this, and I'm like, wow, that sounds, it sounds like really good. They seem totally sincere. It just seems like they're trying to do the right thing. You know, they're saying, God, here's what we'll do. We'll bring you burnt offerings. We're going to bring you calves. God, whatever it is. Now, if you looked at it and you really didn't understand what's taking place here, it seems sincere and spiritual, but it is not. It is not at all. It is not heartfelt. What they are saying here, and this is really important for you to understand if you're going to understand the context that Mike is speaking into, this is not genuine. It is actually arrogant. It is actually a blatant insult to God. You see, and and again, Mike is speaking into this because they're rebellious and stiff-necked, and God is saying, hey, you know, you're my redeemed people. I have this awesome plan for your life, and this is the path that I want you to walk in. But they're like doing their own thing, going sideways against what God had intended for their life. And so Mike is saying to them, hey, you know, I I want you to understand how good God is. And, And they're like all confused of that. They don't even now at this point really seem to fathom the character of God. And the God is always going to be true to his own character. And and it's like that has escaped them in their rebellion. In fact, can I tell you what is actually taking place? This is really, really important. I want all of you to hear this because if you understand this, then you understand the setting that Micah is writing into. It is this idea that is prevailing among them. They are saying, catch this now, I'm not going to change. God, you need to change. That was their attitude. Uh, we have no intention of changing. We're going to keep doing what we want to do. God, if there's any changing going on, guess who's going to change? You're going to have to change. And that's why I'm saying, you know, we read it sometimes like, wow, that sounds really good. And it's not good at all. It's not good at all. In fact, their sin is only compounded by their refusal to repent. So they're like, "Uh, we're not changing. If anybody's going to change God's, no, we're going to keep doing what. And so, you know, it just sort of raises everything that Micah needs to address. Check out these two verses once more, because you saw, you saw it a moment ago, but now, having understood it a little more deeply, I want you to see it right here. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn of my transgression? I want to do a timeout right there. How many of you know that is like a slap in the face of God, just that? You know why? 
because all of, the, all of these nations around them and their, and their worship of these, you know, Molech and, uh, you know, various Baal and worship, then it was, it was an anathema to God. And God was saying, I don't want you to be like them because what they would do, these other pagan nations, as part of their worship cult, what they would do is they would offer all, their own children to try to appease the God, not Yahweh, our God, Jehovah God, but they were trying to appease. So they would actually offer their children on fiery altars as a sacrifice. And so now, you know what, you know, when I was a teenager or something, it, it would be said like, don't be a smart aleck. God is not going to ask you to offer your firstborn for the, your transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. And then here it is again. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, these verses clearly show us that they were working really, really hard to defend themselves by explaining just how faithful that they had been to God. And it's like this attitude. And again, we're, we're about to do a little switch here. We're going to turn the corner, but you've got to understand this. They're like, what more can we do to please God? And not honestly, not forthrightly. What more? It's like, what do you want? What, what's it going to take? You know, what do I have to do to make you happy? And it's like God is saying, and I love this, it's like God is saying, I'm so glad that you ask. And if you really want to know what I want, if you really want to know what I require, then buckle up because I'm about to tell you. Now, you've seen this verse already, but this is the verse we're going to camp out on the rest of our time together. Verse 8. Let's just look at verse 8. The guys are going to put that up on the screen. Here we go. But this time I want you to read it with me. Everybody, let's all read it together. Help me out now. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. From this incredible verse, what I want to do in the time that we have remaining, I would like to raise three questions for you to seriously consider. In fact, I would encourage you to write them down. Put them on your iPad, your tablet, put them on your phone, write them down whatever you need to do. These are three questions, and this is what we have to understand. We have to understand that the reason why God preserved, which was an incredible thing to do when you think about it, all these hundreds and hundreds of years, that God would preserve His Word because this is now, listen, really important, this is now not just about Micah speaking to those in Judah, to the people of God. It's like God has preserved His Word because how many of you know this? God has a message for us. And there's three things right here in verse 8, and I want you to see them. And we'll talk about them in the form of three questions, all right? Here's the first question. Be sure you get it down. What can I do with my life that will help the weak? What can I do with my life that would help the weak? What can I do that would help people that are, that are hurting? Now, when we read these words, at justly, in the first portion of this verse, the idea is this. It is this. It is that as the people of God, that you and I, this is for us now, not just in that day, it's for us as well, that we have this compelling responsibility to step in and to help people that are weak or to help people that have been wrong. Some time ago, I ran across this story. I brought it with me this morning. Some of you have heard about Henry Nouwen and Henry now is this prolific writer, this great, great uh, person in spiritual formation and such. He writes this, and I'll just, or he doesn't write it, it's being written about him. Henry Nowen, a priest and teacher, it's describing a priest and teacher who moved in the exalted circles of Harvard and Yale and Notre Dame, 
came to believe that those settings did not for him call forth the person God intended him to be. So this famous writer spent the last decade of his life caring for the physically and mentally challenged residents of a small community called El, uh, El Arche. There Henry made friends with a resident named Trevor who had many mental and emotional challenges. One time when Trevor was sent to a hospital for evaluation, Henry called to arrange a visit. When the authorities found out that now the famous Henry Nowen was coming, they asked if he would meet with some of their doctors and chaplains and clergy and such. He agreed, and when he arrived, there was a lovely luncheon laid out in the golden room, the golden room, but Trevor was not there. Where is Trevor, Henry asked. Well, he cannot come to this lunch, they told him. Patients and staff are not allowed to have lunch together. And by the way, no patient has ever had lunch in the golden room. It's just unthinkable. But the whole purpose of my visit was to have lunch with Trevor, Henry said. If Trevor's not allowed to attend the lunch, I love this, then I will not attend the lunch either. A way was found for Trevor to attend the lunch. How many of you understand? The golden room was filled with people who were quite excited about the great Henry Nowen, that he was in their midst. Some ain't going to be close to him. They thought of how wonderful it would be to tell their friends later on. As I was saying to Henry Nowen the other day, some pretended to have read books they had not read and new ideas that they did not know. Others were upset that the rules separating patients and staff had been broken. Trevor, though, oblivious to all of this, sat next to Henry, his friend, who was engaged, with converse, engaged in conversation with the person on his other side, on Henry's other side. Consequently, Henry did not notice that Trevor has now risen to his feet. A toast, Trevor said. I will now offer a toast. The room grew eerily quiet. What in the world is this guy going to do, everyone wondered. And then Trevor began to sing. It's a variation of probably something you heard in Sunday school. He said a toast, and he starts singing loudly. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. At first, people were not sure how to respond, but Trevor was beaming. His face and voice told everyone how glad, glad and proud he was to be there with his friend Henry. Somehow, Trevor, in his brokenness and joy, gave a gift no one else in the room could give. So people began to sing, softly at first, but with then with more enthusiasm, until doctors and priests and PhDs were almost shouting, if you're happy and you know it, all under the direction of Trevor. No one was preening anymore. No one worried about the rules. No one tried to separate the PhDs from the ADDs. For a few moments, a room full of people moved toward the best version of themselves because a wounded healer named Henry Nowen lived among the challenge and because a challenged man named Trevor was living out the best version of himself. I want to simply inquire. I want to ask you, and I pray that you would just receive it seriously, soberly, even. Are there any causes? Are there any needs in this world that has gripped your heart. I want you to think about that. Because I think being a Christian fundamentally is just uh, go, more than going to church, although going to church is very important. And we ought to be here, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, Wednesday night, and reading our Bible, important, praying, all of that, being connected to a victory life, doing all the engaged in the ministries, being connected. All of those things are, are, are really important. But this also matters to God. So much so that he says, you know what? I want you. You're my people. You're my ambassadors. You're my representatives here on earth until I come. And I want you to act justly. So have you seriously asked God to give you an assignment 
to help the hurting and the weak. Let me ask you that again. Have you seriously in your prayers, when's the last time that you said, God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give me assignment. I want you to give me a mission. I want you to open my eyes and let me see hurting people and people that need help. God, is there anybody that is hurting? Is there anybody that is weak? Would you give me assignment? Is there any kind of injustice occurring that has caught your eye and that you could help solve? And maybe for you as kids, because we're all wired up differently, we're not all the same. We have things about us as followers of Jesus that are commonalities, they're the same. But when you look at us, we've got different personalities and temperaments and spiritual gifts and talents and such. And so what may uh, God might use to raise up in your eyes and your vision may be totally different from mine or mine may be different from yours. So for some of you, when you hear something like that, it, it causes your heart to maybe quicken a little bit because it's like maybe God has been speaking to you about helping kids that are in need, maybe orphan kids or kids that need tutoring or terminally ill kids. Our kids, like, uh, we've had a chance to sponsor for a good long time now through, it's not, it's uh, not Latin American child care now, it's not called by that, but that's, that's what it is. And so a number of years, we st- a number of years ago, we started supporting a little boy in a very, very poor country. And, and do you know what his name is, this little guy's name is? You know what it is? His name is Jeff. I've heard that name before. His name is Jeff. And Jeff writes these little letters to us, and do you know what Jeff wants to be when Jeff grows up? You want to know what he wants to do? He wants to be a preacher. So how can you not support a little boy, a little poor boy by the name of Jeff who wants to be a preacher? You got to do it. You know, if you were to walk over to my office right now, took you over to my conference table, you would see, and I, I know I'm biased in this, but you would see a big picture on the conference table of three of the most beautiful kids you've ever seen in your whole life. They're my grandkids, Kenley, Landry, and Brody. I'm going to see them real soon, and we were all FaceTiming them the other day, and I was trying to work my way into the FaceTime and talk to my grandbabies. And because I'm going there real soon, this is what I said. I said, Paul's coming to see y'all real soon. Paul's coming. And then I asked this question, where is Paul going to get to sleep? And Kenley's four. She's going to be five in about two weeks. And they're always trying to be funny with Papa. So she looks at me, and you've got to understand that, you know, my kids have grown up in the city, and then, you know, my son transferred. He works corporate office at State Farm, but they don't live in Bloomington. About 30 minutes outside of Bloomington, a farming community, bought three and a half acres, I kid you not, that is surrounded by cows and corn. And so my grandkids are living, country living, at his finest. So I ask him, again, I'm wedging my way, Papa's coming to see y'all. Where's Papa going to get to sleep? And Kenley, the four-year-old, almost five, she said, in the chicken coop. (laughs) Not to be outdone, her two-year-old sister, Landry, who wants to one-up it, she looks at me and grins real big. I know something coming. She said, no, not in the chicken coop, in the chicken poop. So I'm like, oh, I I have no idea what my lodging is going to be. I'm a little concerned. Pray for that. Pray for her. She's she's mischievous. She's from her mother's side of the family, the way she acts sometimes. But maybe God would give you an assignment to help kids. Maybe it's to help elderly, people that are forgotten or lonely or shut in or nursing homes. Maybe God would give you an assignment because we've got to act justly. Maybe God would give you an assignment to help people that have been abused, people that have been involved in sex slavery or battered women. 
Maybe it would be to help the poor, and there's many, many of them. You see, God cares so deeply about the poor that he promises, listen, this is so important, that God cares so much about the poor that he promises to bless those who meet the needs of the poor. God will act on their behalf, but God has also said, I will strongly discipline those who are cold-hearted or callous toward the poor. See, I've got something going on in my my life these days. You know, I told you about that picture that I have of my grandbabies. If you came over, I'd say, look at that. Aren't they cute? Aren't they they precious? But you'd ask a question, as many people have, well, what's that picture all about? Because right next to that picture, same size. I wanted it to be that size, so it stared at me every day. It's a little girl. She's unnamed. I don't know her name. She was from another continent, a very poor place, and she's standing there, and her little shirt is just so dirty. When I first saw the picture and was gripped by it so, because I didn't initially know her full story, uh, her, picture, her shirt was just so dirty, and then I noticed, and I'm just thinking, well, she's playing around. She's got a lot of kids wear, poor kids wear dirty clothes, but then I noticed that it was like, it was all wet. It was dirty, but it was wet. And then I looked in her little hand, and she had a water bottle like any of us would carry around. And in that bottle was some of the dirtiest water, so dirty that you and I would say, I'm not even sure I'd want to walk in that. And then I heard her story. She was so thirsty, but the water was so dirty, every time she would take a little drink, she would just vomit over her little shirt. But she was thirsty, and she would take another drink, and again and again. You know, friends, I want that picture staring me down every single day. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I promise you I'm going to do something. Because God, and he's not going to speak to us all the same. He's going to speak to us about different ways. And I want every day that I walk into my office to be reminded of three little kids that I love so much, my grandkids. But another child and many more like them that God loves so much that he would speak to people just like you and me and would say, I want you to act justly. I want you to look on the screen at something that David Platt had said, and it's a little convicting for me. Perhaps it will be for you as well. Uh, Platt writes, good intentions, regular worship, and even study of the Bible do not prevent blindness in us. Part of our sinful nature instinctively, look at this now, chooses to see what we want to see and to ignore what we want to ignore. How many of you know that's true? And God says, I want you to act justly. Second question. You ready for it? Here it is. Be sure you get it. Am I known to be a merciful person? Am I known as being a merciful person? Micah chapter 6, still that same verse, verse 8. And this is what it says. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, but here's the but to love mercy. God is saying this, and I want you to catch this. God is saying, I not only want you to be merciful, I want you to love being merciful. How many of you know there's a difference? I, I, you know, I'm, I can be merciful, and it's like reluctant, you know, compulsion, obligation. But God says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not looking for that. I don't want you to just do it out of like guilt or any. I want you to just love being merciful. Some of you have heard me tell this story. It's happened a few years ago. Um, 
I've been in my office working really, really hard on a message, writing, 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 praying, 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 studying, studying, studying. And I got really hungry. It was after lunch. And I thought, I'm just going to run out here and run, run to these, one of these little places, get a bite of lunch, come right back, get busy working on that message again. And so I noticed I'd made a couple of turns. And I noticed that there was a slightly older uh, lady. She had been involved in a car accident. It wasn't, it wasn't serious. It wasn't like she was hurt or her car was badly damaged. But you could see she was distressed. I drove by and I sort of slowed down because she's out of her car walking around and you could just see it in her face. Not her car, not damaged, but you could just see the stress etched into her face. You ever have these occasions where God's like, hey, I want you to go check on that lady. And I'm like, no, 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 God, listen, I am, you know, you're like talking to me. Therefore, you've got to know I am so busy right now working on a message to help people. How in the world could I take time? to help people. God like, nope, mm-mm. you're going to turn around. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. And how many of you know, anytime you have a conversation with God, you're just not going to win that. You are just not going to win that. So I went and probably drove by 30 yards, little loop, and I turned around, pulled up behind her car, got out of my car. I kid you not. I walked up to her car, and this is what she said verbatim, verbatim. She looked at me, and she said, Pastor Jeff, thank you for turning around to come and help me. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Could you imagine that conversation in the hall? You didn't help me. Merciful pastor. Love. This is what God said. I want you to love being merciful. The mercy that God requires flows out of His spirit of grace and loyalty and generosity. Think with me about this. What was known about the Christ followers in the first century? What was known about them? You know what was known about them? It was known that their mercy and generosity was impossible for people to be able to ignore. They had little, but they gave what they had. They rarely received any compassion, but they loved showing mercy to others. And God not only speaks and says, hey, I want you to act justly. He says, listen, this is for all of us. How many of you, wave at me if you know this is for us. This is not just Jew, uh, you know, Israelites and Judah and Micah's day. This is for us. He said, I want you to love being merciful. Third and final question, we're done. Do I live my life in conformity to God's will? Do I live my life in conformity to God's will? And here, it's not on the screen, but this, this is the third portion of it. I want you, you want to know what I want? God is saying, you want to know what I want? You want to know what I require? Hey, all the burnt offerings, the rams, you know, firstborn, all that. You're just saying that. You're not sincere about it. I'll tell you what really matters to me. I want you to walk humbly with me. And a lot of times we read that and we, we think this is just a verse about humility, but the original Hebrew language carries a much different meaning. It's this, it's, it's the sense, a similarity in, in, in that I don't want you to walk proudly, but instead, this is what God says to them and to us, instead I want you to walk attentively and carefully before me. I want you to be vigilant. This is like the literal Hebrew meaning. I want you to be vigilant in your desire to follow my will. And it is humble in that way. To put God's will first and our will in a secondary position. And Jesus modeled this so beautifully. I run into people all the time, so do you. I want to know God's will. 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 
And they do unless God's will is in conflict with their will. And if God has a plan that's different, I don't want to know God's will. I don't want to know God's will. God, don't tell me your will. I don't want to know because I'm going to have to change my life. And God says, listen, I want your will to be secondary to my will, primary. See, our hearts will always assume one of two postures, won't it? Our heart will always be in one of two positions. Either our heart will say, God, your will be done, or our heart will say, my will be done. So when I humbly walk before God, I humbly ask, I humbly seek to do God's will. Walk humbly with your God. We're about out of time, but I want to wrap it up this way. I want to wrap it up by saying that You know, sometimes you and I, truth be told, we pretend to be better, stronger, more clever, more powerful than what we actually are. I love the story about a a former boxer, former heavyweight boxer, James Quick Tillis. Stories told about him as cowboy from Oklahoma who fought out in Chicago in the early 1980s. He still remembers and he writes about his first day in the Windy City after his arrival from Tulsa. He said, in his own words, I got off the bus with two suitcases in my hands in downtown Chicago and stopped in front of the Sears Tower. I put my suitcases down and I looked up at that tower and this is what I said, I am going to conquer Chicago. And he said, by the time I looked down, my suitcases were gone. He couldn't even keep up with his luggage. It'd been stolen, much less conquer. Sometimes we pretend that we are more than we really are. I want you to think about something. As we close, consider this. Micah could have said, because the Israelites, you have to understand this, God's people, the Israelites had this, even if they weren't acting obediently toward it, there was still this high respect for the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, it's uh, like a 12-cylinder spiritual word, and it simply is a description for the first books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, about the first five of the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, Micah, I want you to know what he could have done because it will help you to appreciate what he did do. What he could have done And they said, well, what is, I mean, look at all, you know, trying to oppress. Look, I'm doing this. You know, I've done this. Does God want me to do this and this? And so what what does God want? What do you want? What do you require? And uh, Micah could have just thrown it all at him. Because in the Pentateuch, there's about 613 different rules and commands that Micah could have given. 613. But he does not. He says, I want you to act justly. I'll give you three. You can look at the other 610 later. Here's the three God wants you to know. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Stand with me for a closing prayer, everybody. Thank you for being so attentive this morning. I want us to look at the last couple of verses. This is chapter 7. You're going to see it on the screen, and it comes into play with what we're about to do right here. This last chapter, it's near the end of the last chapter. And look at verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? I mentioned to you earlier that when you read, and I hope you will this week, Micah, seven chapters, and you see that there's this message of judgment, but then there's hope and mercy and restoration. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. Hey, let me just ask, how many of you are so glad that God does not stay angry forever? 
God, you don't stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. God, you're not asking me to do something that you're unwilling to do with me. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In other words, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive, but I'm going to forget. Now, here's what we know. You and I can be forgiven. We may never forget what we have done. Ran into so many people, I can't forget. I can't forget what I've done. And they get hung up on, well, you know, am I forgiven? I just keep thinking about it. I'm, listen, listen, you don't have to for, forget it. God's forgotten it. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day. See, some of you need to come into a relationship with God. You come to church, and that's a great thing. We're glad you're here. You read your Bible. That's a great thing. We're glad that you do it. You pray. You're, you're, you've got some spiritual practices in your life, but the truth of the matter is you've never stepped over the line of faith and given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been on a moral inventory plan. You know, I'm going to just get better. I'm going to try to be good. But at some point, you've got to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness from God. And those of you that are watching online right now, you can pray the prayer with us that we're about to pray right here in the sanctuary. And whether you're in the sanctuary, main floor, balcony, or watching online, here's what I encourage you to do. If Jesus Christ is not the leader of your life, the Savior of your soul, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Because at some point in our life, it's going to happen. And I pray that for many of you, it's happening right now. Something just clicks in your mind and you're like, I got it. I got this made sense to me. I need to be in right standing. I need to be in right relationship with God. Today is the day of salvation. And I pray it will be for you. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes and you just say, you know what? I get it. I understand. I need Jesus. It's not just about me being a good person. It's more than that. I need to be good, and I need to do, you know, what God wants me to do in my life, but I need Jesus, and without Jesus, I can't really do the way I need to do. I can't really live the way I need to live, and you just say, I need Jesus. I need the forgiveness. I need the mercy of God. I need the grace of God in my If that's you, would you just real quickly just lift your hand real high for just a moment. Put it up high, high for just a second. I see a lot of your hands, a lot of your hands scattered. Yeah, here, 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 back there. Just lift your hand real high. Let me see it for just a second. You can put it right back down here, back over there. I see your hand right down here. I see your hand looking up in the balcony. I'm not in right relationship with God, but I want to do that right now. You just lift your hand. Several of you did. I want you all to pray this prayer out loud with me to help those who are going to pray it. Dear Jesus. Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I need grace. I need grace. I need mercy. I need mercy. Thank you that you went to the cross. Thank you that you went to the cross. To pay off. To pay off. My sin debt. My sin debt. In full. In full. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a brand new start. Give me a brand new start. Give me the power to live. Give me the power to live. The life I want to live. The life I want to live. A life obedient to you. A life obedient to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. For receiving me. For receiving me. And I receive you. And I receive you. Into my life. Into my life. Right now. Right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Everybody said. Can we give Jesus some praise in this place? Can we do it? We're almost done. Guys, will you go back for just a moment to Micah 7? I want you to see one other word that's really important. If you'll just throw it back on the screen. Look at that word. Next to the last line, compassion. Some of you need the compassion of God. See, God would never ask you to do something that God's unwilling to do. And some of you need compassion today. You need the love of God. 
Some of you are walking through some real stuff in your life. It may be, it may be in your job, and you're like, I don't even know what to do now. I don't, I don't, it's so stressful. It's so out of whack. My, I don't even know what to do. Or it may be a, a diagnosis. It may be an abnormality that your doctor has said, hey, listen, there's something here. I'm worried about it. We need to follow up on this. We need, and it just has you just like in knots on the inside. It may be that you're just going through a time of depression. It may be that things are out of whack in your family. It just may mean that you just need God to encourage you and help you today. God is a God of love and compassion, and we don't want to get out of this place without having a chance to play, uh, pray with you right here at the front. So if you just say, I've got a need, and I want to come forward, I want somebody to pray with me, we're going to pray. The worship team is going to lead us in a song, and whatever your need is, I want you to come and give us an opportunity to pray with you right here in the front before we leave. You start coming when they start singing.